0: about it I'm always a little bit shocked when I see how much venture investing goes into AI applications in the healthcare space and I'm glad that in some cases I'm not the only one. This interview today is with Steve Gullin Steve is uh, managing director at Excel VM which is a venture firm out of Boston Uh, lots and lots of healthcare and life sciences in Boston Steve comes from that world directly PhD himself Um, and works pretty much exclusively in the healthcare domain. And we talked today about the various applications of AI and machine learning in healthcare. What applications have a thousand chances to get blocked and redirected by insurers, or doctors, or hospital managers who aren't interested in implementing the technologies, and which healthcare technologies might have more promise for direct application, not because they're inherently better technologies, but because there's just less barriers to adoption and more clarity for the ROI of the person investing in it those, those uh, technologies that eventually trickle down to better patient care or eventually trickle down to you know, some kind of savings for the hospital have to go through so many other hoops. And Steve uh, paints a very colorful picture as to what those hoops are and which kinds of technologies can get gunked up in the works of the regulations and of the kind of adoption human issues of, of uh, PhDs, many of whom are, are not exactly eager to lose their job and probably won't be even when the time might be right. Uh, Not to say that we should necessarily boot PhDs out, but uh, human adoption is definitely part of the shtick here in the healthcare space. And Steve kind of paints the picture as to, uh, again, where those biggest hangups are and where the applications are that uh, maybe don't have as many of those, and and which ones he he tends to believe are a little bit more exciting and applicable. So lots and lots of color here added to the applications of healthcare uh, and AI from an investor's perspective. I enjoyed this interview a lot. Uh, previously, we actually had Juan Enriquez, who uh, was co-authored on a book with Steve called "Evolving Ourselves," which is a, a book that that I got right after the the Juan interview, which was actually a number of years back. So, really glad I got to catch up with Steve today. I hope you all enjoy this episode. Um, if you're interested in more healthcare and machine learning applications, it's actually one of the more popular articles on our site for the last six months running is uh, machine learning applications in healthcare. Very, very popular article. If you just go to techemergence.com, you can check that one out as well. We're probably going to link to it from the interview with Steve too. So without further ado, this is Steve with Excel VM, and we're talking about healthcare and AI. So, Steve, I'm interested in, in your perspective. I, I mentioned beforehand, we actually had Juan Enriquez on the program a while ago. It's funny that you guys have a connection. It's good to talk to Boston folks again. Um, we've talked to a lot of investors out here in the Bay Area around where they've seen more AI and machine learning show up in their pitches. You're out there on the East Coast. You're un- undoubtedly seeing, you know, as many, nearly as many pitches as the folks out here would be. Where have you seen AI and machine learning whittle its way more into businesses and pitches from your perspective?
1: So, uh, I focus uh, generally in healthcare, although it's very, very broad-ranging, and so we're seeing it everywhere in the healthcare space. It ranges from uh, drug development, and genomics, to decision-making for physicians, imaging, diagnostics, almost anywhere you have lots of data right now, people tell us that they're actually going to find the, the secrets within that data, and the, uh, we'll see how that works out. <laughs>
0: Nice, um, and and so you're obviously you're a life sciences guy by background. People who Google you will be able to find that out pretty quickly. It sounds like that's pretty much where what you knuckle down on in terms of, I guess, what you're vetting primarily is in the healthcare space.
1: Uh, yes, and our firm is more general than that, but in terms of my specialty, that's where I sit most of the time. And uh, what we're seeing is uh, a convergence of a lot of the AI technologies and healthcare data generating. Uh, platforms uh, starting to talk to each other with smart people on both sides.
0: Huh? Uh, and I know that right now, at least by what I what I've read as the trends, you know, if you look at your CB Insights and the other folks that kind of track investment uh, trends around here, uh, healthcare is certainly among the top, if not rated at the top, of deal flow. You know, with business models that are, are pretty well married to, to AI and machine learning. As you had mentioned, you're seeing it in a lot of different places: genomics, drug discovery you know, aiding in decision, decision making. Uh, I didn't realize that was going to rhyme, but but it almost did. Um, and and also, uh, I imagine, you know, uh, machine vision for diagnosing tumors and all, all these other domains. As you said, anywhere where there's a flood of data, people are stating that, um, you know, with, with the right technologies, we can kind of coax out, you know, coax out the patterns of the meaning in that information that might be valuable. My guess is, there's been some of those that maybe you see more promise or utility in um, than others. Give us a quick sense maybe of in the healthcare space, AI machine learning, m- maybe you know you get a lot of pitches. You probably want less of the bad ones, more of the good ones. Yeah. Maybe the people that listen yeah. into this will be able to take note before they come talk to you. Um, what's the stuff that, that really hasn't gotten you excited versus the things that really feel like they have promise to you, to someone with industry experience?
1: Uh A couple of thoughts. One is, uh, the ones that are most exciting are the ones that have a team that includes both healthcare professionals and AI professionals. Because in general, the AI people show up saying, as soon as someone gives us lots and lots of data, we're going to find all the secrets. And then the uh, healthcare professionals really don't know exactly what's possible. When you get them together, you start to see some compelling applications. The first place is really opening up in terms of health, uh, patient health, is imaging and looking at MRIs, x-rays, and other things, really is an assistant to the physicians in more more remote hospitals where they don't have high-end radiology experts sitting in the room. And so that is a first place that you're going to see things, or even in ERs, where around-the-clock analysis of images becomes important. But uh, there are a bunch of areas where we're starting to see it in.
0: And so, curiously enough, I'll poke and prod into a couple of these ideas, Steve, um, and, and again, I'm sure you've seen a good deal more of them than I have, but they, they're certainly piquing my interest. I know they will for the audience as well. You brought up sort of this, you know, diagnostic support for folks that might not have, you know, half a dozen oncologists on call at 3 a.m. in the morning when when something happens or, or what have you. Um, You know, some people might suspect or suppose that the first hospital's to, you know, have these technologies pretty well embedded into their processes, um, would be, you know, your Mount Sinai's and and your, your folks that already really have the funds and really have great doctors and really have great support from donors and, and things like that. It sounds as though what you're saying is that we might be more likely to actually see those decision support technologies more in hospitals that don't have the expertise and resources first. Is this, is this what I'm kind of hearing here?
1: Yeah, well, the difference is you're seeing them in the big hospitals in terms of defining what the early uses are. And those are the hot, heavy R&D centers where you have the people and you have the access to the technologies. The NVIDIA tips are just showing up in the Harvard system now. Uh, but in terms of where it's going to be applied first, it's very hard to tell extremely smart teams of doctors they're going to be replaced. It's uh, And so it's where you actually have a deficiency of expertise that people are more willing, and it's going to be a hand-holding. It's not a replacement. It's someone who just, it's an imaging system that tees up. Why don't you look closely at the part area that's encircled in red as a physician? So I think the way in which it's adopted is not going to be very natural in terms of every area of the economy except healthcare. You really do have embedded physicians nervous that it's going to be take away the control and it may make the wrong decision.
0: Yeah, that's uh oh man that, that's its own struggle within healthcare. I I always kind of grit my teeth when I when I listen to to folks with a, a kind of firm healthcare pitch, especially not now when I am now when you're just talking about, you know, health tracking and little kind of fitness uh utilities. But I'm talking about real healthcare because of all the the hoops and loops Ooh. and regulations and considerations and who are you selling to and who can keep you From being able to sell to those people, you know, do the physicians want to use it? Uh, These are pretty interesting concerns. It sounds as though a lot of those tensions you see as real, and you also believe that maybe those tensions will make kind of the initial hand holding implementations of these technologies a better fit for places that don't have those doctors who would fight it and maybe have more general physicians or or nurses who who would would welcome this technology as, as an augmentation. And not see it as the same kind of threat as a specialist might. Is that a, a correct supposition? You're
1: right. And the, the niches could be geographical in terms of the hospital. They could also be in terms of a, a subspecialty. Where often it just comes down to what the reimbursement rate is. It will not fall naturally into high end image analysis because that's where a physician might get the most, uh, the largest paycheck. And that's just the history of healthcare in terms of how things get adopted. So, as an investor, we have to pay very, very close attention to who's actually going to benefit financially from this. Is it the physician? Is it the insurer? Is it the hospital system? And that really is a big determinant of where it gets adopted first and how quickly.
0: I, I think about that as almost like the pachinko machine of the healthcare world. It's like, like yeah. you, you have the you have the the people who own and manage the hospitals you have the patients you have the doctors you have the insurers yep. you have and it's like good grief i mean the 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 <laughs> massive the massive chess games i mean i think about old yep. like you know uh 17th century generals laying out their maps and like determining where <laughs> all the enemies are and what routes they're going to take and it's like right. I mean, you really have to lay out that kind of map for everything it's not just a better mouse track it's right. it's it's a better route through the pachinko machine you you folks have to think a lot about that. And it sounds like for for AI's adoption, you're already really heavily considering where the pushback is going to be and, and figuring right. out maybe where the least amount of pushback is going to be that will actually permit adoption, which is different than I think what a lot of people would have assumed is that wealthy hospitals would hit it first. Sounds like kind of, you know, the threat to the specialist is pretty strong and, uh, and we'd have to find other ways around it. You also brought up an interesting point, Steve. I'd love to touch on it. You have, uh, again, rich experience here that the, the, the big robust, uh, you know, diagnostic tasks may pay really well. And so a specialist right. is, is going to be loath to, to give that up to the computer, even, and, and Steve, I, I hate to say this, but probably even when the computer legitimately, statistically, and almost unquestionably does a better job. Um, And and we may not be there yet, by the way, I'm totally not railing against physicians at all. I sympathize with their circumstance. I'm not this is not an anti-physician talk, but it seems like we're going to be dealing with that pushback even when it isn't in the patient's interest because the monetary interests of making sure it flows through the human are so robust. Man, what what are the ways around that? I mean, do we just kind of accept that and build business models around it? That's that's tough.
1: It is tough, but there are always a few beachheads that are going to pay off. There's some some applications right now where physicians don't enjoy a particular kind of call, or one where having some assistance can actually be a big benefit to everybody involved because it, it gets rid of cues that may have formed uh, around particular readings or stuff like that. I think what you're going to see is very specific applications within a particular setting, such as calling a a stroke. In the ER, as a bleeding or non bleeding, uh, where there's a life and death decision that's very binary. And so there'll be an aid. So that one application in the ER may be useful, but other applications will take a little more time. And obviously, it's the AI is needed most where the decision making is hardest. <laughs> it's, so there's going to be a little reluctance to adopt it. So you're going to have to see the old, good old peer reviewed publications and the clinical trials that are put to test. So, which is why I think it's going to be used, AI and machine learning in particular is going to be used in other aspects of healthcare more routinely first, things that are less regulated, less uh, payer sensitive. Uh, so, some of the places we're seeing it is just managing your population of patients, looking for trends around uh, new therapeutics that come to market across an entire hospital system or an entire uh, insured population to start to see things that are working and are not working and to begin to implement best practices. There it's a, used as a tool to create hypotheses that you then can test going forward. And I think that you'll see that happening behind the scenes and it will become very important in beginning to manage down the costs of healthcare. But that is not going to be something the patients feel first and for, uh, foremost in the beginning.
0: Yeah, I, I think about this... Uh... In a similar light, and I'm, I'm glad you're, you're shining light on this right off the bat in our talk. You also, curiously enough, Steve, used the beachhead battle analogy directly after our previous battle analogy. Yeah. So it, it sounds as though it, that is very much the reality here.
1: One place where one place I'm seeing it it's going to be very useful is in drug development and genomics, where we're overwhelmed with data in both of those places right now, to the point where humans cannot synthesize what is meaningful and what's not. Uh, it's a different pot of money than the insurance companies. And so we're starting to see a lot more um, AI applications. And what's happened there is the algorithms and the ways to analyze the data have been around forever. We just haven't had the computing power to do drug design, for example, in silica, to look at massive populations of patients with their DNA anal- analyzed. And so now we finally have the you know this new term, the GPU, instead of the CPU coming to the fore in terms of computational power. And one of my companies, we were actually bringing in people who built Google Earth and other things to begin to develop the data structures and the databases to do high-level analytics.
0: And, and that does feel like, to be frank, personally, and I'm far from being an investor in, in this space, uh, I'm pretty firmly kind of in, in entrepreneur land right now, but were I... I would lean so damn far away from the pachinko machine. I just, I just can't, I just mentally can't deal with it because I'm too yeah. used to just selling stuff. And if the product is has merit and your channels are strong, you can just get a return on investment like a, right. oh God, just really troubling stuff. Um, so, and it, but it sounds to me, Steve, you, you had mentioned drug discovery is a different pot of money. I would, I don't know the regulations, but I would tend to agree. It does feel like the companies, like if you're the CEO of, you know, Eli Lilly, for example, or Merck or one of these guys, you have a massive, massive incentive to do whatever it takes to get a drug out the door. And if, and if that means, you know, Lord help us, if that means that a one or two folks kinda need to get moved to another department because they're pretty redundant because the machine's doing it, or maybe even one or two folks get laid off. You know, if if the company's stock price rises, there's just less Pachinko machine to deal with because this is a pretty clear ROI assessment and it doesn't have all the same gunk that a lot of these in hospital applications have to deal with. Do you feel similarly?
1: I do feel similarly and it and it's actually a confluence of a lot of factors. One is biological drug discovery technologies have been traditionally very poor signal to noise, that's starting to change. So you actually have more reliable data right now, whether it's looking at human genomes or high-throughput drug screens. The, the quality of all the data is now more meaningful and more useful. There's also enormously large data sets that are publicly available to actually supplement what you have. And finally, the computational powers I mentioned in the cloud, in particular on these GPUs, these video processing units that are uh, they have been used by the gamers, now makes it possible to do structures of molecules or to inventory what you have in your screens in an hour or an afternoon rather than a year. It used to be an entire PhD was doing a simulation of a structure of one molecule. Now that can happen in an afternoon. So now it becomes useful to begin to think about machine learning and these AI approaches to some of these uh, drug development uh ideas.
0: Yeah. And, and again, as we were talking about beforehand, the incentives are just so much stronger and more straightforward yeah. there as well. It's much more like business, you know, where if you do something that's good and gets the job done, someone will pay you. You know, it's, it's a lot more like that. Uh And I can definitely see how that would drive adoption. You, you mentioned a couple other more sort of business intelligence type applications as well with, and I've heard, I've heard of, uh, I've talked to a number of companies who are fit this boat, whether it's sort of Uh, understanding how to fill appointment times and being able to kind of project absences and, you know, automatically call or dial or message people who are most likely to be able to show up to fill an empty slot if one pops up or like you had mentioned things about, you know, managing patient flow or other aspects of data. That feels to me, Steve, like a business intelligence application that we're just using in the healthcare industry, but it almost doesn't feel to me per se like we're inherently in healthcare land other than sort of where we're applying it. It feels to me like that's business intelligence. It
1: is. In fact, I'm involved in one particular project where we're pointing all these tools at uh, business databases. And in this case, what's different about the biotech field is biotech lives and dies by intellectual property. And so you actually have the way to use that as part of your Rosetta Stone for looking for diamonds in the rough or opportunities that are undervalued by looking through the patent histories and seeing what's out there that people don't appreciate. And that's on a global basis. You know, when you have 20, 30 million patents to begin with to see what you're looking at, the companies you're looking at and their financing histories and the cost of clinical trials and what the pipelines look like in one huge data set. You could actually find things that were invisible before.
0: Huh? So, so maybe that is, in your opinion, you know, one of those areas where insight really could possibly be gleaned here. I I know you're saying a lot of the the pure AI guys will just say, "Hey, with enough data, we can find something." It sounds like you're a little. You you consider that application to be a little bit more believable.
1: Well, what I I, it's not only believable. I mean, could you you generate? So imagine as an investor, someone comes in and tells you, "I have this unbelievable." new therapy for uh, you know HIV. And you can now search more vastly across business and patent and literature databases to see what's similar and is out there, that, not only whether it's competitive, but to actually validate the science and the business that this person's telling you about. Or before, you just didn't have that available to you, and now it's relatively inexpensive and available.
0: Last question that I think would be interesting to kind of put a cherry on top of the conversation here. You know, we've got business intelligence and analytics uh, applications inside the business. We've got more of what maybe we would call market intelligence or search, like advanced search kinds of technologies in the IP space and in the the drug space and crunching that kind of data. You know, let's just say I'm a patient in a hospital in like five or 10 years, Steve. Yeah. Where do you think... I would actually feel or notice some impact of AI first. Right now, it's safe to say, for the most part, when I go in and I, you know, have a a really bad cold or something like that, or, or, uh, you know, I've pulled out my back or something, I show up at the ER, I'm kind of going to have the same experience that I would have had in 1993. And, and there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with that, by the way, per se. I don't, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. But at some point, somewhere it will be felt that shucks, you know, the patients will start to realize that, there, there actually is some intelligence in some of the machines around them. Where do you think that will be noticeable by the broad populace first?
1: I think we're, to be honest, I've, for most common diseases, you won't see it readily. Because we're already pretty good at those. If you walk in with, with an MI, everybody knows how to treat that. But when you have something that's a little unusual, a fever that's just not uh, coming down or a response to a drug, uh, you know, adverse response to somebody's not picking up, I think you're going to find these outliers as being more, more easily picked up because physicians will be feel comfortable saying, I don't really quite understand the situation here and start to say, oh my goodness, this is probably a tick-borne disease. I had never thought about that huh. uh, in this context. And so, I think, in terms of throughput and patient efficiency, that will actually be invisible to the patients. The idea that it costs less per X-ray to be analyzed, your adjudication of your bill is quicker. You won't feel. But in terms of, I have something unusual. You don't have to search for six months on the internet to try to figure it out yourself. So I think healthcare will start to understand those outliers much more readily.
0: Well, I, I certainly hope so. I think that is maybe one of the great promises. Certainly, IBM touts that a good deal. There's other companies working on that, and I think. Hopefully, that would be a boon to healthcare in many ways. But like you said, a lot of it will be invisible, but it's, it's interesting to hear your perspective on where it would be seen first. Steve, that's all that we had for time, but I got through everything that I wanted to. This is an excellent interview. Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast.
1: Thank you, Dan. A lot of fun.
0: Well, that wraps up today's episode here on the Tech Emergence Podcast, and thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to stay in touch with our latest interviews with C-level executives and top researchers and thinkers in the domains of AI and the intersection of technology and intelligence, then make sure to subscribe here on iTunes or visit us on our main website at techemergence.com, where you can see all of our interviews broken down by category, as well as articles, news, market research and trends in artificial intelligence. If you found this episode particularly thought-provoking, feel free to leave your thoughts in a review here on iTunes, or you can feel free to reach out to us at our main website. Thanks as always for tuning in, and I'll catch you next week.